Before we look into God's word together today, we want to take a moment to honor the men and women who have served in our nation's military forces so that we could continue to enjoy an incredible freedom, including our freedom to worship here publicly, freedoms that many people in this world don't even dream of. So I'm going to ask if you have served or are currently serving in our armed forces, would you please stand so that we can appropriately thank you for your service. Don't be hesitant, please stand. Some people aren't comfortable standing in public. The whole time you're clapping, they're going like, oh, well, they, have, they haven't stopped yet. Please stop. I want to sit down so badly. All right, allow me, please, to lead us all as we unite our hearts, praying for veterans, those currently serving, those who have served, many of them facing difficult circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, today knowing that you ordain government and you commission government to protect the innocent and punish the evildoers, we thank you for the men and women who are serving and have served in our nation's military to protect our freedoms. We pray that every veteran this day would experience some blessing from your gracious hand. We pray for those who are currently serving and especially in those places where their lives are at risk this very moment. And Father, we pray for your protection upon their lives. We pray that those hot spots of conflict would become places of peace so that their lives will not be in jeopardy or be at risk. But we know that places of strife will always exist until Jesus returns. And for those who are in those places, protect them. And minister to their families who awaken every day wondering if this might be the day they receive that dreaded visit or that call. Lord, for those whose service is in the past, we know that many of them are struggling emotionally, they are among our nation's homeless. They are among those who are committing suicide frequently. Uh, Father, being exposed to death and combat does devastating things to the human psyche and to the human soul. And we pray today for those who are struggling emotionally, psychologically, physically, financially. And we pray that you would lead across their path people of compassion who would see their need even if they aren't articulating it currently. People positioned to be your hands and your feet and your voice to them. Help them to connect with agencies and ministries that will serve them. And help them to put their trauma in the past and experience the healing of the total person that Jesus provides. Father, 
in this fallen creation. We need people to protect us. Thank you for those who have served in that capacity. Bless them. Let them experience your power and your grace in new and fresh ways and help us to be a part of that process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, today we continue our study of the Old Testament book of Daniel, a handbook for how to keep your faith when you find yourself in a corrupt culture. And I want to begin today by asking you a question, not for your response, but for reflection. Here's the question. Is it possible to speak God's truth, but speak it in a way that misrepresents God's heart? Can you speak God's truth in a way that misrepresents God's heart? I think most of you would answer yes to that question based on your observations and your experiences. I know I've certainly heard and read comments by fellow believers that have just made me shudder. I just wanted to say, oh, you didn't go there. Why would you say it like that? Do you realize how that will be received? Their words were true enough, but their tone was troubling. Well, this weekend, we're going to consider how four Jewish teenage boys in exile, boys who had been the victims of hideous injustice, boys with a legitimate complaint, boys that the world would say had every right to be resentful, expressed their uncompromised devotion to God in compassionate and respectful manner. They have much to say about consistently choosing obedience over compromise and communicating our choices in respectful fashion. And God's response to that has a great deal to say to us about how he honors respectful witness and uncompromised devotion. And today's teaching is yet another example of how this ancient book is really more relevant than the next 24-hour news cycle. Once again, I want to set the stage for our study by reading Daniel 1.8, but this time I'm also going to read verse 9 because it transitions us into the next installment of the story. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And I'd pause there to remind you, as we've already seen, this wasn't about food. Daniel and his friends weren't militant vegans. In that culture, to eat the king's food was a symbol of your ultimate loyalty and devotion to the king, and their devotion was to God. So Daniel sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Our topic today is going to be respect and favor. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, as finite human beings pursuing an infinite God, we need to know your truth because it's the knowledge of the truth, not the truth itself, but our knowledge of the truth that sets our spirits free. Today, by your Holy Spirit, enable me to teach your truth. I can't do it otherwise. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to understand and apply the truth. We can't do that otherwise. And we pray that 
that your mission in us and through us might take another step forward and that you might be honored in the world you created. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice to our hearts today, may the Lord be with you. You don't need me to tell you that following Jesus often requires difficult, hard choices. And when we're confronted with hard choices, we inevitably feel a rather uncomfortable pressure. And in those moments, we're tempted to make the choice that we believe will best alleviate that pressure or alleviate it quickly rather than the choice that will best advance God's agenda for our life and in our life. But like many before them and many after them, Daniel and his friends proved that the pressures of temptation don't have to produce compromise. Those boys, rather than making a choice that was intended to alleviate the pressure they felt, made a courageous choice that actually intensified that pressure because it put their lives at risk. But they were willing to put their lives at risk to avoid a greater risk, the risk of compromising their devotion to God. And in the aftermath, they learned firsthand that the pressures exerted upon Jesus' followers by corrupt culture can actually be made to firm up our faith. Now, on the one hand, those pressures can squeeze us into conformity with the culture. But if we handle them properly, they can be made to squeeze out anything that doesn't conform to God's agenda for our life. And here's why. Our decisions not only reflect our character, they shape it. Obeying God makes us more courageous. Obeying our fears makes us more cowardly. To modify a well-known saying, when we sow a choice, we reap a habit. When we sow a habit, we reap a character. When we sow a character, we reap a destiny. When faced with hard choices, standing at the intersection of faith and corrupt culture, we're tempted to tell ourselves that I'll make that hard choice tomorrow. Because when we do that, it immediately lessens the pressure that we feel. But the problem is our delay is a choice. And it's a choice that starts to establish momentum in the direction of fear. And once you establish momentum, it's hard to reverse it. Faith generates more faith. Fear generates more fear. And that reality explains a statement I heard years ago. When we're tempted to compromise our devotion to God, when we're tempted to sin, our first yes to God will always be the hardest. While our first no to compromise and sin will always be the easiest. Now, the first time I heard that statement, I went, huh? I mean, uh, say that again, because I, I didn't get that. And I suspect you might have the same response. So let me unpack it. 
When you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to compromise rather than obey God, your first yes to obedience, your first yes to God will be the hardest yes. Because you haven't yet established the momentum of obedience in that matter. You haven't yet developed the habit of obeying in that matter. And you haven't yet experienced the rewards of obedience in that matter. All those things come later on the backside of saying yes to God. So your first yes to God will always be the hardest one. Conversely, your first no to a sin, to some compromise, is the easiest no because you haven't yet established momentum in the direction of disobedience in that matter. You haven't yet formed a bad habit in that matter, and you haven't yet experienced the addictive and paralyzing effects of saying no that will make your future obedience even more difficult. All of those things come later on the back side of saying no to that sin and compromise. Now, all that to say this, delayed obedience is the most difficult obedience. It'll never be easier to obey God than the first time you're faced with a choice. That's why scripture says today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Now not only can we learn a great deal about making godly choices through Daniel and his friends, we can learn a great deal about godly witness by observing how Daniel communicated the decision he and his friends had made. He communicated their uncompromised courage with uncompromised compassion and courtesy. As he addressed their handler, their supervisor, he spoke to that man respectfully, not rudely, not resentfully. Because he recognized their choice to refuse the king's table put that man in immediate danger. In Babylon, if you didn't fulfill Nebuchadnezzar's wishes, you lost your head. And if that man didn't carry out his assignment, he would lose his. So in compassion for their captor, what Jesus would later call love for your enemies, Daniel respectfully suggested an alternative that was aimed to help the boys maintain their devotion, <coughs> but to help, excuse me, the supervisor save his face, save his job, and save his head. As aliens who were sent by God to demonstrate the superior ways of God inside a corrupt culture, Daniel and friends knew that faith has to refuse many things. But those refusals are more attractive when they are spoken in grace. Otherwise, our refusals can easily sound self-righteous, angry, hateful, or arrogant. Remember, our witness is damaged when a godly decision is communicated in an uncaring, ungodly fashion. Now, given their godly, respectful approach to their supervisor, 
God moved that man's heart. And we read that God caused him to show favor and compassion to Daniel and the boys. Now, I'm not suggesting that if we are respectful in our witness, we'll always receive the favor of the world. History makes it clear that won't always be the case. But we won't know how it turns out until we make the effort. And given our assignment to be God's witnesses in a broken world and to love our neighbor, it's worth the effort to be respectful in our witness. We may not receive the favor of the world, but you will always receive the favor of God. Well, the supervisor couldn't risk having them appear before Nebuchadnezzar looking gaunt and weak and malnourished. So he agreed to what Daniel suggested, a 10-day trial. During that time, the boys would eat nothing but vegetables and water. They would refuse the king's ribs and cheeseburgers, mac and cheese, and greens. <laughs> 10 days wasn't a long enough time to have them look malnourished, but it was long enough to see how things were trending. Now, the book of 1 Samuel says God honors those who honor him. So it should come as no surprise that at the end of the 10-day trial, Daniel and his three friends appeared healthier than everybody who had been dining at the king's table. And I suspect that supervisor breathed a massive sigh of relief and finally enjoyed a good night's sleep. So the arrangement became permanent. They would not have to do something that symbolized devotion to the king and their supervisor would be safe. Now verse 17 says in the aftermath of that, God gave the boys knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Don't blow by that quickly. I want you to notice God gave them knowledge and intelligence in the aftermath of their appropriately expressed devotion. And I'm stressing that because it's further proof that despite the predictable, tiresome, threadbare accusations of this corrupt culture, faith doesn't stifle your intelligence, it liberates it. There are people that suggest no educated person could follow Jesus. No enlightened person could be a follower of Christ. There are those who mockingly suggest to be a Christian, you have to check your brains at the church door. Well, faith doesn't stifle intelligence. The fear of the Lord, respect and awe for God is the beginning point of wisdom. And faith liberates us from what Scripture describes as, quote, always learning, but never arriving at the knowledge of truth. Now, that would make a fitting epitaph under much of what goes on in our culture. Always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And I want you to notice, he gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Again, don't rush by that. 
there's those who would suggest, well, being a follower of Jesus probably wouldn't hinder you if you're studying engineering or architecture or, or uh, IT, but it would certainly be a hindrance if you're studying psychology and sociology and politics. No. God gave them wisdom and intelligence in every branch of human learning. Friends, God already knows everything about the world he created and the human beings he created. And human knowledge is never out ahead of God. It's always pitifully so far behind God that it doesn't even realize how far behind it is. Don't be embarrassed that you have chosen to use your intellect to follow the greatest intellect in the universe. Don't apologize for that. Don't feel intimidated by that. Now, the boys had earlier agreed to a Babylonian education. It was a three-year curriculum. I did that, and that's six. It was a three-year <laughs> three curriculum. And it was meant to transform captives into Chaldeans, to make them Babylonians, to make them traitors to their people, traitors to their God, and useful tools of tyranny because they would be civil servants with no real connection to any of the factions within Babylon. They would be immune to what we now call identity politics. But Nebuchadnezzar had to be certain that the education worked, so he always examined the trainees himself. Now picture the scene. Here is the most powerful man in the world to human thinking, head of the greatest empire in the world. Everybody fears this man and his empire, and he's examining four Jewish teenagers whose fate he holds in his hand. And as others looked on, it appeared Nebuchadnezzar possessed all the power. But as we look back through the lenses of faith, we recognize that those who worship God possess far more power than those who worship power. Nebuchadnezzar only possessed the fleeting political power that can be stolen by a rival, crushed by a conqueror, overthrown by rebellion, or, as we'll see, surrendered to dementia. Even if that kind of power continues for decades, it comes to a screeching halt in the icy grip of death. In contrast, Daniel and his friends possess something much greater, the eternal power of the eternal, all-powerful God, a power that is immune to every rival, any conqueror, and any rebellion. And here's the truth, because they're absent from the body but present with the Lord, Daniel and his friends are still existing and living inside that power, and they always will. One reason we sometimes struggle to make obedience our first choice is the fact that God doesn't always validate our obedience immediately. Right? Sometimes his validation comes later. We have to wait for it. Right? And while you're waiting, the devil whispers in your ear, see? Big mistake. One worth it. He didn't come through for you. But the final words of chapter 1 affirm the fact that while God doesn't 
arrive early. He never arrives late. Because the chapter closes just like it began, with a statement that at first glance appears to be nothing more than historical trivia. Nothing significant, nothing earth-shattering. But where the world sees trivia, the eyes of faith see truth. Because the chapter closes, verse 21, with a simple reference to how long Daniel served in a high government post in Babylon. And it tells us that the boy who chose devotion over compromise remained in a highly visible government post inside a corrupt culture where he was a foreign exile for the entire 70-year period that the people of Israel lived in exile in Babylon. He maintained his position for 70 years despite Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, despite the assassination of Nebuchadnezzar's successors, despite the fact that he was a political outsider deeply resented, always surrounded by attack ads, political intrigue, political envy, political plots, political maneuvering, political persecutions, and ultimately being thrown into a den of lions. But yet he held his post for 70 years. God gave him favor. The boy who spoke with respect experienced 70 plus years of favor. But hear me, the favor God gives his people when they obey him is never for us alone. Its benefits are intended for the blessing and the welfare of others. And in that vein, I want you to think what Daniel's 70 uninterrupted years of political power meant for his countrymen who were living in exile. It meant that powerless, degraded, dehumanized, victimized, disheartened people who had arrived in Babylon not by choice, who had streamed into that nation in a caravan of misery and humility, knew that one of their own walked the halls of power and exerted significant influence on their behalf. They were the consummate outsiders, but they knew we've got some guys on the inside. Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and they're always going to represent our interests and speak up for us. So when those exiles were tempted to surrender their faith to the tsunami of injustice and idolatry that had washed over them, Daniel's testimony, Daniel's position reminded them, God is able to keep us in any circumstance. It may appear that Babylon has won, but things aren't over yet. The final chapter hasn't been written. The obvious honor and favor that God bestowed on him became a beacon of light to a people walking through a dark, dark night. And it helped them to hold on to hope when despair was always just a few seconds away. 
See, God wants your life and my life to offer light and hope to despairing people. That's why respectful witness and uncompromised devotion are so important. It positions us for favor, and the favor spills out to others. We are aliens sent by God to live in a corrupt culture. Daniel and his friends were also, and they demonstrated that we don't need to compromise under pressure. And when we communicate our devotion to God in thoughtful, respectful fashion, he gives us favor even in the sight of our enemies. Proverbs 16, 7, God is able to give favor even the sight of your enemies. There are people in this immediate community that hate what we believe. They're, they're very transparent about that. But they love what we're doing in the community. God has given us favor in their sight. And they come to our support when we need to do things in the community. And they want us to remain in the community even though they disagree with what we cherish. That's just God giving favor because we refuse to compromise our devotion, but we attempt to communicate it in a loving, respectful way. Respect in our witness is always the best course for God's people. And favor from God will always be the ultimate result of that. If not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. Remember that when you find yourself in dialogue about matters of your faith. Remember that when you talk to people who come on strong, vilifying your faith, accusing you, calling you a bigot, phobic of everything that you disagree with, accusing you of being intolerant. I, I just want to remind you again, the people, most of the people in our culture that talk about tolerance don't even know the definition of the word. Amen. Because, because to be tolerant of something, you have to be first opposed to something. Otherwise, you don't need tolerance at all. Accepting everything is intolerance. It's moral ambivalence. It means you have no fences. Uh, you have no filters to decide what's true and what's not true. That's not tolerance. To tolerate, you have to first disagree. When you treat those that you disagree with lovingly and respectfully, that's tolerance. Uh, affirming everything that is contrary to God's truth in the world is not tolerance, it's betrayal of God, and it's moral insanity. Amen. Truth has an inside and an outside. For many folks, tolerance means you have the right to agree with me. <laughs> but if you don't, you're phobic, 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 hateful, hateful, helpful, hogwash. Don't be intimidated by that crap, because that's exactly what it is. Intellectual crap, spiritual garbage, logically inconsistent. Amen. The tiresome diatribes of those who are always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, when you're encountered with that, don't get down and dirty. Uh, my mother collected old sayings. I, I've followed in her footsteps. I, I, we need a recovery group for those who <laughs> quote old sayings all the time. Staff always tells me, you have an old adage for everything. I admit it. Hi. 
I'm rock. I'm a recovering old saying addict. Mom used to say something a lot of your mothers used to say. You'll catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Now, sadly, one of our profs at CMU told me, Pastor, scientifically, that's not true. I hate that. Because <laughs> now i got to go look that up and, and, and let go of an old saying. That'll be traumatic for me. You pray for me. But I still think the idea. Yeah. If you get on Facebook and tell people, you're going to hell. What you'll hear is minds going. <coughs> but if you have to get on Facebook, if you can't help yourself, <laughs> if you have to tell the world, I'm here and I need to be heard, be respectful in your witness. Here's something that will help you. Remember, no person is your enemy but many persons are victims of your true enemy. Uh, people who hate what we believe are not really our enemies, but they are victims of the enemy from whom we've been liberated by the power of God. They have fallen victim to the God of this world, the prince of darkness, who closes the understanding of men so they cannot see God's truth and be liberated by it. So don't hate the victim. Hate the hater. <laughs> and speak gently and humbly to the victims. And God will give you favor. And we'll be able to turn from darkness into light, from death into life. And that's why God's put us here. Not to have the final word in an argument, but to point men and women to the one who will have the final word in history. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so glad that by your grace we have found the truth of Christ and our hearts have been set free. And we want others to be free as well, but help us to remember until they're free, what we say isn't going to make a whole lot of sense and it's going to sound threatening. And we need to speak it like Daniel and his friends, with compassion and respect. So that you can give us favor, and that favor can be translated into somebody's liberty. It becomes increasingly difficult to hold that middle in an increasingly polarized culture. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We can do it. Help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.